Listener Production. Just a heads up in case you've got little ears in the car or nearby, this is probably a conversation for adults only. Here is my conversation with Angela White. Angela White knew she wanted to work in porn from the age of 14. She saw the industry as a place where her sexuality and her love of sex would be celebrated, not stigmatised. Today, Angela is one of the biggest adult entertainers in the world. The Daily Beast describes her as the Meryl Streep of porn and she has a whopping 9 million followers on Instagram. Angela is back in Australia for Sexpo this weekend and she joined me for a conversation about why adult entertainment performers, like many sex workers, generally aren't respected in society and why working in porn is still so often reduced to mere cliches. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with Angela White. Angela White, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. Now, my first thought, as soon as I say welcome to The Weekend Briefing and use your name, is the fact that a lot of people who work in porn don't use their birth names or their real names. Mm. They have a work moniker. Why for you was that not a choice that you made? I'm really proud of what I do. And it was a real conscious decision getting into pornography. So I had a lot of time to think about how I wanted to be in the industry. And using my real name, my birth name, was a way for me to show how proud I am. It's a political move, really, to say, This is something that I've always wanted to do and I'm not going to hide behind an alias. I love that answer so much. I know that porn was something you wanted to do from when you were a teenager. Tell me about what attracted you to the work in the first place. So I was always a sexually curious teen and as I started developing, I really wanted to express and explore my sexuality. But every way that I did that was deemed inappropriate. So I was bisexual, I was having sex with men and women and that was, and my promiscuity especially as a woman was seen as really inappropriate. I was seen as stepping beyond the bounds of acceptable female sexuality and pornography was the first place where I saw women celebrated for expressing and exploring their sexuality. So as soon as I saw it, I was 14 when I first saw porn, I was so intrigued and so fascinated and so taken up with this idea that, wow, there's a space for me where I can live an authentic life, truly be myself, express my sexuality, be with multiple people, exploring different fantasies in an environment that's safe with sex positive peers. So I waited until I was 18, obviously, because that's the legal age. And then as soon as I turned 18, I contacted some companies that I wanted to shoot for and the rest is history. Even listening to the language that you've just used there, describing how perhaps other people saw you as a teenager, the word promiscuous is so loaded, right? And it's a word that I don't think we use at all, or at least very often if we're talking about, or not even men, boys, right? We wouldn't call a teenage boy promiscuous. Correct. And there is that double standard where we think of women in the industry as victimised, degraded, Uh, coerced, whereas men in the industry are seen as champions. I'm interested in that conversation as well. So let's turn to that for a moment and we'll come back a little bit to your timeline. I I think when we 
talk about whether it's porn or whether it's sex work, any kind of paid work where women are owning their sexuality, we tend to worry about them yeah. straight away. The, na- the narrative is, you know, the poor tragic female figure who was forced into something or who had no other choice or, you know, yada, yada, yada. Tell me about your experience of the industry, not just yourself, but others as well. When and how often does that stack up as true? Well, I can't really speak to others' experiences, uh, but I can only speak to my own. And my experience has been incredibly positive. It's been a space for me to be creatively sexual. It's been a space where I've been able to bring my own vision of sexuality to life, a place where I've been able to turn my passion into a career where I have body autonomy, um, I feel empowered. It's really been a positive experience for me overall. And uh, I know many other people in the industry also have positive experiences, but I don't want to at any point, you know, try and speak for everyone. I can only speak to my experience. But it's very interesting to me that I have such an incredibly positive experience and I talk about it a lot, but people still believe that, I mean, there are so many myths that surround the industry about how every woman in the industry couldn't possibly want to be there or was coerced into it or is drug addicted or is somehow victimized by the situation. And the stories of women that are empowered in this industry are always silenced. Do you think that's because there's still a sort of a pervading sense of shame about sexuality in our culture more broadly? Even if you if you move out of the the porn industry, if you just think about us as human beings and our willingness to talk about sex and our willingness to talk about sexuality, there is still a sense of private things to be kept private and, you know, there are things we don't talk about. Yeah, and that goes back to that um, how I felt as a teen growing up. There's so much, there's still so much shame that uh, surrounds sexuality and especially for women, for, for both men and women, but especially for women there's a lot of um, stigma when it comes to freely expressing yourself sexually, being open with your sexuality. Unless you are having sex with only one man to whom you are married, anything else that you do steps outside of the bounds of normative female sexuality and femininity. How did that shape you as a young woman, not as a girl when you were at school where it sounds like life would have been pretty tough with that kind of level of shame being placed on you? But despite the fact that you were interested in working in porn at 14, you're experiencing that shame from other teenagers and yet at 18 you still know this is what you want to do and you're diving right in. How had that shaped you as an 18-year-old going into the industry? What did you, what did you think about it as you, as you entered the industry for the first time? I was so excited to finally enter the industry after so many years of thinking about it. And I, I I had a lot of time to go over the pros and cons and really deliberate over this decision because obviously a decision like this you can't you can't go back on. Once you're on naked on the internet, you're naked on the internet forever. <laughs> but I had this powerful resolve. Like I really felt that what I was doing. So, for example, before I was in porn expressing my sexuality, I didn't think it was wrong. I know that so many other people thought it was wrong, but I felt like I was living my authentic life, like being myself. And it's such sexuality is such a core part of who I am and I believe for 
a lot of people, their sexuality is a core part of, of their being. And so many people repress that. And I just don't want to live like that. I think a lot of us were uh, raised in in households by parents or guardians who did teach us to feel shame around sex or at least secrecy, if not shame. And as a result, there were probably a lot of conversations most of us should have had as kids that we didn't have. Um, I know there are a lot of parents of young, young kids who listen to this podcast and so it's probably still in their future. But at some point they're going to be having those conversations with their kids. What sort of conversations did you have as a child growing up that meant that by your teenage years you had a level of acceptance and autonomy and excitement about sex rather than shame? My mum was really good at being open with me about sex. Whenever I had a question, I would ask her and she would always tell me the truth. And she would do it in an age-appropriate way, obviously, but she was always open with me. She created an environment where I could always ask her any question and, and not feel fear. So I do I do know that I'm extremely privileged in that. Not everyone gets that kind of sex education in their household, but I'm very grateful that I got that from my mum. A lot of kids these days are getting their sex education from porn because porn is so available now in a a way that it hasn't been necessarily in generations past. Um, Money is no longer necessarily a barrier. Uh, As long as you've got a smartphone or a computer, uh, you can access porn. What do you think that does to kids' understanding and ideas about what sex is and how sex should be? Oh, it's incredibly problematic because pornography is not an educational tool. Pornography is entertainment and it's entertainment created by adults for adults. So getting your sex education from porn is very problematic and I do think that it's not the role of pornography to teach kids about sex. It is the role of parents and schools and I think a lack of sex education is really problematic and also a lack of porn literacy. I think it's Obviously, everything needs to be age appropriate, but kids at some point may encounter pornography and they need to be able to understand that it is entertainment and not education. Angela, when did you start to come to the realisation that this work you'd gone into for the love of it could be something that potentially made you very wealthy? Even when I started treating it as a business, I never thought, wow, I could become very wealthy from this. It was, again, just pursuing my passion, wanting to be creative, wanting to bring my vision of sexuality into the world. And I just realized at a certain point, this is something that I love doing. And if I want to continue doing it as much as I can, then I need to be able to make money from this because this is what I want to focus on. And so it was a very, it was very slowly that I realized, oh, I can turn this into a career. I can become an entrepreneur. Oh, if I work really hard, I can also make a lot of money and set myself up. How much control did you have in the first part of your career, especially as it started to be more successful and you started to become someone who was sought after in the industry? Did you get control because of that? Actually, quite a lot of control. So the first shoots that I did, every time I would work with another performer, I was always told what the pairing was, like who the other performer was. So I had, you know, an opportunity to, to look at their work and make sure that I consented to working with them. 
I think that pornography is such a great environment for setting up boundaries and and asking for consent because as a performer when you're having sex with another performer, you need to constantly check in and make sure, is this okay? Is this what you want to do? Like, And things can change throughout the day. And even though this wasn't standard in the beginning of my career, it's, it's standard now to have a full consent checklist that we go through before every single scene. So that'll go through every single act. And it's a yes, no, specify, how hard, how soft. So there's a lot of control in terms of like, who we're partnered up with, what kind of sex acts we do. I gained more control, even more control, once I created my own production company and started directing my own films. Because when I'm shooting for studio porn and I'm, you know, hired for the day, I'm not necessarily in control of the location or the wardrobe or the makeup artist, things like that. Whereas now as a producer and director... I'm choosing the location, the wardrobe, I'm the scenario, if there's a storyline. And that's when I started to really begin to, as I said, you know, bring my vision of sexuality to life. Because when I first shot, I loved shooting with the companies. It was exhilarating. It was fun. But I was still bringing their vision of sexuality to life. So that's when I decided to create my company. I know that at university, your honours thesis was looking at your experience as a porn performer and really diving into the feminist texts and looking at the idea of pleasure in pornography. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah. So I I actually didn't look at my own experiences in my honours thesis. What I did was I did qualitative research into female experiences in the Australian pornography industry. So I kind of took myself out of the research. Yeah. You, you were interviewing others. Correct. Yes. It was very interesting that the canonical narrative of victimization was really strong in the personal narratives of the female performers. So, for example, I never asked them to write about whether they felt degraded or victimized. I just allowed them to create their own narratives and just tell me what they thought I should know about their experiences in pornography. But they always felt like before they could say anything about their experiences. They needed to justify the fact that they had made a choice to get into the industry. And I felt that really constricted the way they could speak about their own lives. So that was one of the very interesting things that came out of that research, but also the radical potential of pleasure in pornography. Because the way that the women identified themselves sexually before they entered porn was sometimes different to how they identified after they'd been in the porn industry. So to give you an example, one of the participants that wrote a personal narrative for me spoke about how she got into the industry, she had a boyfriend, she identified as purely heterosexual, and then she did a lesbian scene, gay for pay, as we call it. And during the scene, she experienced intense pleasure. She orgasmed, she just had the most incredible sexual experience with this woman, And suddenly she started questioning her own sexual identity. Wow. And I thought, wow, how interesting is this that pornography as a work environment can place someone in a situation that they wouldn't normally be in, identifying as heterosexual. They wouldn't normally be having sex with a woman. And then the radical potential of pleasure completely changes the way they self-identify. That is so interesting. And I imagine... In fact, I know from mates of mine who are lesbians who say that their first experience of starting to think about their sexuality was when they were watching porn and they realised 
while watching heterosexual porn that they were focusing on the experience of the woman and they weren't looking at the bloke at all and it made them go, ah, ah interesting, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I think pornography, people underestimate the power, uh, the positive power that pornography can have for some people because I think that mainstream media is a lot more inclusive, but there was a time when different sexual identities, queer identities were not as represented in mainstream media and pornography was one of the only places that you could see that kind of sex. You are someone who is very much in control of your career and your work and you now have your own production company. You're directing and editing your own content, as you spoke about earlier. Is that common in the industry? Are you usual in that regard or is there a new generation of adult entertainers where women have more control, who have their own little empires? I used to be very unique. It used to be very uncommon for female performers to be running their own production companies and directing and editing their own content. But now with OnlyFans, everyone's a content creator, which has been incredible. OnlyFans has been great for performers because it's really put the power and the money back in their hands. It's a real democratization, I suppose. You've sort of stripped away the barriers to accessing the industry and making money in the industry and given that back to the performers themselves rather than someone else making money off the back of your work. Exactly. How do you think OnlyFans is going to change the industry further as we move forward? Like there's clearly been a major disruption to how the business model works already, but is that going to continue to have more and more effect? What will it look like in five years, in 10 years? I can't predict the future, but I think that now the performers realise the financial benefits of creating and owning their own content. I think that that will continue and that performers now make royalties. They create content they own that content and they can sell that content again and again and again for years to come. So while I can't predict the future, I do think that performers will remain empowered in that way. You're a politically active person as well. You ran for the sex party in Victoria back in 2010. Tell me about making that choice. Tell me about the choice to have a crack at politics. So Fiona Patton asked me to run in that election and it was as I was finishing up my honours. So it was a really stressful period for me. But the reason I agreed to it was because Kathleen Moulton was running for the Greens in the seat of Richmond and she had an anti-sex work platform and she wanted to close down the brothels in Victoria, which is a really dangerous thing to do. Even the sex workers themselves constantly say that that actually sends sex work underground and makes it more dangerous for the females within the industry. So my aim wasn't to win. My aim was just to draw attention to the fact that Kathleen Maltzen was running this campaign that was anti-sex work and anti-sex worker and was dangerous for women. And I achieved that goal, so I was very happy. And she did not win. So I consider that a success. That must have been a real experience to enter a completely different industry for a period of time. And politics is not a kind game. Mm. It's not a generous game. It's not a space where people 
hold your hand and help teach you the rules and understand the complexities of it. And obviously in this campaign, you weren't necessarily pushing to win a seat in parliament. You were running to make a point to to make change in another way. Did you enjoy it? And if so, what did you enjoy about it? And maybe what did you not enjoy? Well, (laughs) what did I not enjoy? I can say that people think pornography is dirty, but politics is way dirtier. (laughs) Well, I enjoyed the experience in that I learned a lot. It was a really tough environment to get into because I had I had no experience in politics. I didn't know what to expect. And people were not warm and welcoming, as you can imagine. But I just really focused on the fact that I thought it was really dangerous for women if Kathleen Maltzen got in and had that platform and then started shutting down the brothels. So I just got through it. <laughs> To make that, to hopefully make that difference, which, you know, I played a small part at at least bringing attention to that. How do you feel about your level of exposure and your your level of fame and celebrity, I suppose, because there are real trappings that comes with fame. It sounds exciting and glamorous from the outside, but often when it's you and there are a huge, extraordinary number of people, not just here in Australia, but around the world who know you, who know your name, who know your body. How do you grapple with that day to day? It's a big ask for a human being to have that sense of so many people around the world being invested in who you are. What's an honour as well to have so many people supporting me and following me and caring about what I'm doing and what I'm saying. And for the most part, it's wonderful. It's It only becomes scary when you have a very f- small number of people who become obsessive and you, you do get stalkers and things like that. But thankfully, 99.9% of my fans and my followers, they're really genuine, wonderful people that just enjoy my work. How do we make the work that you do safer? How do we make sure that for people who are working in porn – How do we make sure that they're supported when it comes to having a safe work environment and having a work environment that is fair and a working environment in which they have control, particularly from the outset? I say that because you're at the top of your game and someone like you, you've had enormous success and with that success comes the ability to exercise more control because you're wanted. There is demand for you as a commodity. Mm. But if you're a younger woman who's listening right now, who's just starting out, you're one of many. So how do we make the industry safer for her? I just, I feel like the stigma is a real negative that makes life hard for sex workers in general. It makes it hard for us to secure loans. It makes it harder for women going through custody battles to get custody of their children. I think that because there's such a big stigma around sex work, it means we don't have as much opportunity for assistance. And the porn industry is self-regulating and it's nowhere near perfect. But we're doing a good job of implementing lists of consent for onset attempting to make performers feel comfortable and knowing that not only can they reject, say, certain sex acts, they can change their mind during a scene. They can at any point call cut and end the scene. 
So while I think that there's always room for improvement, I think at the moment we're doing a good job of at least doing things more positively. And I think OnlyFans has had a really big impact on that as well because performers are so empowered because they're making their own money on their own terms and therefore there's uh, less chance that there's going to be a situation where they feel uncomfortable leaving a set, for example. Well, I think there are some lessons in what you said Um, for those of us who are having sex in our personal lives, right? Like firm boundaries around consent and Mm. the reminder that you can retract that consent at any point. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like the industry has something to teach people in that regard. Yeah. I wouldn't underestimate the power of the answer you just gave either. You know, we we tend to point to solutions to keep people safe at work that lie in regulation and lie in lawmaking and, you know, new systems that might come from a government body. But stigma at a societal level is a problem and it means that there is always going to be a insidious level of discrimination that could affect someone in any aspect of their life and and that's much harder and more complicated to fix. Unfortunately. What is next for you? You've had this incredible career so far. You've been inducted into the AVN Hall of Fame. You've won Female Performer of the Year three times now, which is extraordinary. You're known all over the world. You're running your own show. You're directing your own videos. You're in your own company. What's left to do? (laughs) What's left to conquer? Well, there's always new ways that you can challenge yourself as a performer, as a director, Every year that I've been in the industry, I've always tried to push myself to be more creative, to connect on a deeper level, even to connect on a deeper level with my fan base. And I still enjoy performing so much. So I have no plans on stopping anytime soon. Angela, it has been such a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you for stopping by the weekend briefing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. That's it for my conversation with Angela White. Sexpo is happening this weekend at the Melbourne Convention Centre. You can get your tickets at sexpo.com.au and Angela will be there. That's why she's here in Australia at the moment. You can also follow her on Instagram. Her handle is at the Angela White. It is weekend list time. Bron is here and she is going to help me out with what on earth I am going to do this weekend. I've got a rare weekend at home, not flying around doing stuff. Bron, I am going to need some entertainment. So this first one is a documentary on Netflix called Stuts. It's by Jonah Hill. Everyone, everyone is talking about this. It's so good. It's about Jonah Hill and his his therapist, Phil Stutz. It goes into some, you know, really useful mental health tips. It dives into his therapist's personal life. You know, Jonah Hill struggles with his own mental health journey, as well as, you know, his struggles with the filmmaking process about the documentary. It kind of gets a little bit meta at some points, but like in a really sort of fascinating way. Um, it's also in black and white, which is like an unusual but oh, nice really? touch. That took me by surprise. And then, yeah, and it's also very funny. It's got Jonah Hill in it. So, you know, even though it does touch on some like heavy topics and issues, it's done in a really like watchable and enjoyable way. I really, I really loved it. They just listen. And your friends who are idiots give you advice. And you want your friends just to listen. <laughs> and you want your therapist to give you advice. But you have to give somebody the feeling that they can change right now. 
Okay, you've sold me even further. The number of my mates who keep mentioning this documentary, I think I'm ready. I think I'm <laughs> off to watch it this evening. I also have a TV recommend. I want to recommend season two of White Lotus, which of course is a show that we all binged last year when it first hit our screens. For those who are wondering whether or not you need to watch season one to watch season two, you probably don't, to be honest. They're very much standalone series. There are two characters who follow through, but you don't necessarily need their backstory to understand it. Uh, Season one of White Lotus introduced us to a bunch of holidayers uh, who were going to a really high-end resort called the White Lotus and staying there. And it was kind of about the interaction of the hotel guests and uh, the people who work at the hotel, a bit of an upstairs, downstairs kind of feel with some incredibly big names like Connie Britton, for example, is one of the big stars of season one. Season two is set in a different White Lotus, this time a hotel resort that is set in Sicily. Jennifer Coolidge is back uh, playing Tanya, who was one of the best characters, I think, of season one. Everyone else is new. Everyone else is a new character. And again, it has that gorgeous interaction of the upstairs, downstairs sort of feel of the haves and the have-nots, but it brings in the mystery again and the sense of anticipation and it has that beautiful soundtrack that makes you sort of feel really uncomfortable and like even these scenes that feel like otherwise they would just be a few people having a conversation they feel so loaded and your skin crawls with the kind of what's going to happen next anticipation honestly it is just one of the best shows on tv at the moment and I highly highly recommend that you watch it and for any Megan Fay fans if you are a fan of Sutton from The Bold Type she's in it too and she's really good You bring your assistant to a vacation with your husband. It's not like she's going to be in our bed and stuff. I don't know what's going on with Greg, but I think it's bullshit. I think he's having an affair. I've seen a lot of guys who, like, make all this money and they just start acting different. Oh, my God. I've been meaning to watch that for so long. I always say it's on my list, but I'm definitely going to watch that literally right now. So my next one is Dead to Me Season 3, which is on Netflix. It's a dark comedy that came out uh, a few weeks ago, the third and final season. If you haven't watched it yet, you must get onto it. The cast is unreal. It's got Christina Applegate. It's got Linda Cardinalini. It's got James Marsden. It's all about female friendships, but in a really fun and like non-cliche way. It's got a lot of dark twists and turns and it's really like short episodes. So you can get through it really quickly. I watched literally the last season all in uh, one Saturday. So it's definitely very watchable, very bingeable, and you will love it. That sounds great. Okay, I've got so much good TV to watch this weekend. I don't need to go out. I don't need to go anywhere. I'm going to stay in and I might have a glass of wine. And the reason I say that, Bron, is that I want to recommend a Pinot Noir from Styx in the Yarra Valley. Styx as in like you, you, you pick up sticks, count to six, like sticks that fall from the tree. Uh, literally, that is what the brand is called. And I am not much of a drinker. Those who know me well, I'm literally like a maybe a five or six glasses a year kind of drinker. Uh, it's just not something I really do anymore. So when I drink, it has to be good. Like it's got to be good. It's got to be worth my time. And I had a sip of this Pinot Noir with some friends the other night and I ended up having um, a glass, which is a lot for me, folks, because I am not a drinker again. 
I'm not good at describing wine. I think only those wine people are good at describing wine, so I'm going to let them do it for me. Apparently, the reason this sticks Pinot Noir is so good is because it has lovely cherry flavours with playful spices and something other else. And there are subtle tannins. I don't know what any of that means, everyone. I do not understand that. Um, But it was really delicious. And it's from the Arrow Valley where I got married. So I'm a big fan. That's it for the weekend briefing for another week. Thank you so much for your company. If you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to follow us within the listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review while you're at it. We will be with you again bright and early Monday morning when Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.